0: A hearty welcome to all of our listeners here, and I'm delighted to welcome you today to the next edition of Pod Plus Canada from the McDonnell-Laurier Institute. Today, we'll be looking at trade, economic governance, and other future challenges in the pivotal Indo-Pacific region. My name is Jonathan Berkshire Miller, and I am Director and Senior Fellow of the Indo-Pacific Program at the McDonnell-Laurier Institute. As many of you know, MLI has recently launched its new initiative, which will commit a great deal of our efforts in the coming months to look at this important region and its importance for Canada. It's my great pleasure to be host today and to be joined from Tokyo by a great friend and one of Japan's most seasoned diplomats, Mr. Tomoaki Ishigaki, who serves as director of the Economic Policy Division at the Ministry of Foreign Affairs in Japan. Since joining the ministry in 1994, Tomoyaki has covered various multilateral and bilateral negotiations, ranging from international trade at the World Trade Organization, the International Criminal Court, and several other negotiations. He's also worked as Deputy Cabinet Secretary for Public Affairs at the Prime Minister's office most recently. In his current post, Ishigaki-san oversees Japan's economic diplomacy, including G7 and G20 leaders' meetings, WTO and OECD matters. And if that wasn't enough, Ishigaki-san has also spent time contributing his intellectual curiosity as an author of several articles as well as teaching at Japanese universities on issues including international law, disarmament affairs, and climate change. Ishigaki-san, thanks so much for taking the time to join us, and good morning. Good morning to you, Jonathan. It's nice to be here. Thanks so much. So Ishigaki-san, to kick things off, I wanted to talk a little bit about the economic situation and supply chains amidst the COVID-19 pandemic. I'd like to ask you about how Japan has been dealing with the different economic pressures from the global pandemic. We know, of course, that Japan is not alone in this regard. Indeed, Canada and most other countries in the region are facing similar concerns. But the growing interconnectivity for states in the region and the reliance on supply chains must have presented Japan with some economic challenges in the way that it engages with the region. Are there any early lessons or takeaways that Japan has learned so far from this pandemic? Yes, Jonathan, thanks for
1: that question. Just like any other states, Japan was also hit hard by the pandemic, Uh, not just by the sudden economic downturn, but also through the shortage of goods and supplies. At the earlier stage of the COVID last year, around March and April, Recall that the face masks were not available all around the world. I was also wandering around the drugstores stores in Tokyo to look for one. Personal protective gear, such as gowns, face shields, which are essential for medical workers, were also short of supply. In recent months, you've also seen reports that the supplies of semiconductors used for automobiles are scarce, slowing down the assembly lines. These examples have made policymakers and industry leaders critically aware of the need to review the supply chain network. But at the same time, uh, Jonathan, you recall that Japan is not alone or this is not something new for Japan because of its history of fighting against all kinds of natural disasters. You recall that the 2011 earthquake and tsunami at that time gave Japan a serious challenge of maintaining supplies of goods and materials. And also the flooding of Thailand in October 2011 had a major impact on the uh, Japanese auto industry. So it is true that after the COVID-19 outbreak, Japanese government has encouraged companies to diversify production capabilities in order to ensure the stable supply of goods and material. But according to a number of industry people, key takeaway from those previous national disasters is not just to relocate the factories and source of material outside of disaster-prone areas. One of the approaches that have been taken since then was to find out ways to invent a better system of inventory system and also create a digitalized network of identifying a location of goods and material that is essential for this global supply chain. The electronic tagging system is one way of addressing that matter, and there are many other ways of doing so. When asked after this COVID-19 outbreak, many corporate representatives say that it is just too simplistic to assume that the Japanese company could simply relocate its assembly line from one place to another, especially from places like China, because China is just too big to ignore. So by taking a more holistic approach by using digital technology and diverse ways of supply chain networks seems to be the path that many companies are taking these days. I hope this answers your question.
0: That's really interesting, Ishigaki-san, and a couple very interesting points on that. I think one thing you mentioned is sort of the time situation. And I would agree with you that rather than looking at this as a kind of a knee jerk reaction, or we should be reassessing supply chains as a function of the pandemic, my sense is the pandemic was more of a warning signal. It sort of reiterated things that many states in the region already knew. So I think we can learn a lot from states like Japan, but others in the region. I think you pointed to a couple interesting examples. Obviously, Japan has had a a range of experiences through natural disasters, earthquake, the tsunami, obviously in two thousand eleven, but also the Indonesian tsunami as well. I think that many states in the region have had these experiences, which has made them rethink some of their supply chains. So I think it's a lot of good takeaways there for Canada. We'll touch on the COVID-19 theme throughout the discussion, but I'd like to move on now to international trade, in particular in Japan's role in the region. It strikes me that Japan continues to play such a central role in the overlapping trade architecture growing in the region. With the adoption of two mega free trade deals, the TPP-11 and the Regional Comprehensive Economic Partnership, What does the future of free trade in the region look like? How does Japan differentiate between these two deals? Because Japan is a key member in both deals, even though they seem to be quite different deals. But can you tell us a little bit what the difference is? And do you see both agreements as likely to expand in membership? And sort of cheating as the host here to ask you one more difficult question, but what are your thoughts on the potential for the U.S. to re-engage and particularly with regard to maybe rejoining the TPP discussions? Thank you, Jonathan.
1: If this pandemic has taught us anything in terms of global trade, I think the biggest lesson is to make sure that uh, keep the international trade free and open and of course flowing. In addition to the two agreements that you mentioned, the CPTPP and the RCEP, we should not overlook the significance of the most recent agreement that Japan has signed with the UK, as well as Japan's economic partnership agreement with the European Union, which just celebrated its second anniversary on February 1st. I draw attention to the agreement with the UK because it's most notable in a sense that it was negotiated in only four months during the whole course of pandemic and almost all negotiations, with exception of two ministerial meetings, took place online. Of course, we all know that there's a sense of urgency on both sides to get this done before the Brexit kicks in at the end of last year. But I think there's a strong sense on both sides that that they really have to make sure that this trade deal would be made, especially in the very difficult times of the pandemic. With regard to this RCEP and the CPTPP, I think the timing of the agreement and also the way that it's now functioning cannot be underestimated. There's certainly a difference between the two agreements besides the membership. The CPTPP, in my view, has set one of the highest standards in the economic partnership agreements Japan has signed so far, and it would be a model for any other agreements to follow. We also know that this RCEP has brought in China to the regional framework and bring benefits not only to Japan, but also all other Asian countries that have strong trade ties with China. Also, China has expressed its interest to join the CPTPP, and of course, the UK has made the official application to join the CPTPP just a few days ago. For both countries and, of course, any other states, it is essential to see that if they can meet up with the high level of standards that I just mentioned, and that would be a key criteria for going forward. When it comes to the United States, of course, it is encouraging to see that the new Biden administration is keen to engage in multilateral talks on key global issues like climate change and global health. I very much look forward to working with the new administration in the area of global trade and investment, but might be a little too early to tell what might be the best way to
0: move forward. So I may be just dodging your million dollar question here. Thank you very much, Ishikaksan. It's a very unfair and tough question. I similarly agree with you that President Biden has a lot of things on his plate right now. First and foremost, obviously, is combating the pandemic and of all the things on his desk. The Indo-Pacific and especially trade is are important issues for him. But as I said, I wouldn't hold my breath that the U.S. will be rejoining anytime soon. Your comments were really well taken. And I think from a Canadian perspective, obviously, we're a member of the TPP-11. One of the most interesting things that I find from the Japanese model, and this is something Thing I've been mentioning when I think about how Canada should be engaging in trade terms in the region is that Japan has so many different layers and mechanisms that it trades with in the region. Obviously, we just talked about a couple here, the RCEP and the CPTPP. You rightly mentioned some of the engagements with the EU and with the UK. But also it strikes me that Japan has many bilateral and other sort of mini multilateral deals and ASEAN FTAs and maybe FTAs with every single member of ASEAN. I'm not sure if that's correct, but they have significant amount of bilateral FTAs in that region. So that to me is an interesting model that I think can cover your bases in many different ways. So I think that's something that the Canadians I could maybe learn from. I did want to keep with the topic of trade for one moment before switching gears. It does strike me that one of the reasons that the CPTPP and RCEP, which we've just talked about, have emerged has been a result of the failure of the international trade regime to articulate new rules. In particular, but not exclusively, I'm thinking of the stagnation for years of the World Trade Organization. The WTO seems to be under even more pressure in recent years with the growth of protectionism from some member states and a challenge dispute resolution. How central is a functioning WTO as a complement to the growing trade integration happening in the region through agreements such as the TPP-11 and RCEP? Is WTO reform possible in the coming years, or do you think that states will increasingly be looking beyond it? That's a very tough question,
1: but also something that I hold very dear to my heart because WTO was one of the first negotiations that I got involved in the multilateral talks in the previous century. I survived Seattle and I was there at the beginning of the Doha negotiations. So I'm a strong believer of multilateralism and I definitely believe that WTO has a role to play and actually its relevance has become even more so in this time of a global pandemic. Definitely, WTO needs to be updated. We have not seen any, say, tangible results in the trade liberalization talks. But at the same time, we should also note that the WTO has created a number of key agreements on trade facilitations and so forth. So it is very important for all members of the WTO to show its relevance in the global trade and investment field. In this regard, Japan has been strongly advocating the negotiation on electronic commerce together with co-conveners of Australia and Singapore. And I think it is particularly important when everything has become more digitalized and the world has become much closer. And of course, when it comes to the institutional reform, the reform of the appellate bodies and others are also imminent. And we hope that that can be strengthened with stronger engagement of the United States and other key countries. Just to summarize, definitely WTO should remain in the central despite all the increase of the regional and the bilateral trade agreements.
0: Well, thanks, ishikak I think you made some really good points there. And, you know, I think in many ways, as we talked about some of the trade agreements in the region, and as you referenced correctly, the CPTPP is a high ambition deal that I think sets some very solid rules for international trade going forward. But there's no necessarily silver bullet for trade rules in the region. And I think perhaps using some of these mechanisms, such as the TPP-11, and RCEP is a different agreement, as you referenced, but the more, the merrier in a way to sort of complement some of the reform efforts that are going on in the WTO and the, the piece you finally on e-commerce and the digital side, I think is very crucial and important too. And I want to press you on that a little bit afterwards. But first, I'd like to just move on a little bit from international trade, at least from the international outlook, and move a little bit more precisely to Japan's view and Japan's economic policy interests in the region. As you know, Canada is also working on developing its approach to the Indo-Pacific region, which Japan has developed much earlier. And I think we can learn a lot from Japan's free and open Indo-Pacific vision. From a trade and economic lens, Can you briefly outline what this looks like? What is Japan prioritizing in economic terms in the region? And who are its key partners? Are there other areas to expand to in terms of trade agreements? Or has Japan already covered this through RCEP, CPTPP, and some of the bilateral deals that we've talked about earlier? And finally, how does this connect with Japan's development approach to the region? Are there key synergies? Thank you, Jonathan. It's truly encouraging to
1: see many partners like Canada And most recently, some European countries like Germany and UK are paying closer attention to the Indo-Pacific region. What is most important when we discuss this concept of free and open Indo-Pacific, or the FOIP, is not to lose sight of its key ideas, which are fundamental principles of the international society. There are, of course, ideas like democracy and human rights, economic prosperity through enhanced connectivity, and, of course, global peace and stability achieved through maritime security and other means. And you can easily appreciate that advancing the global trade and multilateral institutions would certainly go hand in hand with all these key concepts of international community. In other words, promoting fair trade cannot possibly contradict with the concept of free and open in the pacific It should be also noted that connecting free trade agreements and economic partnership agreement to FOIP can be seen a little too simplistic. I don't think there's any idea on the Japanese policy makers that, that there's a map of the FOIP and we will intend to have bilateral or regional agreements with all countries that are on that particular map. I think what is more important is what Japan and Canada would like to achieve through the CPTPP and not to just find overlap between the agreement and the FOIP concept. I think the CPTPP or any regional or bilateral free trade agreements are the vehicle of the key ideas that we like to realize It's also encompassed in the FOIP. In other words, Enhanced connectivity in areas like infrastructure and digital communication uh, done in a free and inclusive fashion, of course, in accordance with the international trade rules, is of critical importance. And, of course, when doing so, we should be mindful of the economic and debt burden of the developing countries that we are assisting in development assistance programs and I think such kind of approach would certainly be complementary to the objectives of the FOIP. In this regard, the cooperation that is now sought between Japan and the European Union in the area of connectivity can be a useful reference point. You may have heard that the Foreign Minister Motegi was invited to speak at EU's Foreign Affairs Council on January 25th and highlighted some of the key policy objectives that Japan would like to achieve through the FOIP. And when doing so, he has explained some possible areas of synergies between the European concept of the Asian connectivity vision. And I think that kind of a pragmatic approach can be something that Japan might be able to also discuss further with partners like Canada.
0: Well, thanks so much, Ishigaki-san. And on that point on additional connectivity, I'd like to ask my final point on that. But to quickly comment on your remarks regarding Japan's economic policy, I think there's a lot of interesting takeaways. And one of the things that stuck with me that you mentioned was the consistency and the way I see Japan's efforts, in many senses, this would be true with other countries. There's more consistency in evolution. So when looking at visions like FOIP or how other countries view this region, it's not necessarily that they woke up one month, two years ago and decided that we've got to trade with ASEAN, we've got a trade with South Asia. I think many of these, the investment policy, the development policy, the trade policy was there before. I think Japan is a good example of this, having layered much of that region in trade and investment for decades prior to the TPP. So I think that while these new movements are important and the framework is important, I think the framework of thinking about this region in a more connected way is important, The nuts and bolts of this, I think, have been in the works for some time. So that's a really important point. And your second point, which I think is very important for Canada to think about, is Japan's willingness to work with other states in the region and other parties, such as the EU. I think that this is an intriguing concept for Canada. Obviously, we're interested in working in the multilateral bodies that we're a part of, uh, APEC, Asian Development Bank, and the ASEAN Regional Forum as a dialogue partner. But I think we should also be thinking much more closely about which partners we can be working with bilaterally and then. Minilaterally, I think that's a good point. So for a final question on the digital trade side, which is something you mentioned a number of times during today's discussion. So I wanted to scan the horizon a bit and ask you about how Japan is currently positioning itself to take advantage of, as well as mitigate risks from, the newer trends in trade and economic governance in the region. First, I'd like to ask on the growth of the digital economy, which has been a boon to the region and the globe more broadly, but also seems still undefined adequately in terms of rules. As we discussed earlier, there are two relatively new key multilateral trade agreements, RCEP and TPP-11, of which Japan is a member of both. There is also still important deliberations for the purpose of the WTO, despite its shortcomings. How are these new agreements evolving rules on digital trade, and what more needs to be done? Uh,
1: Digital trade or the strengthening of digital economy worldwide is definitely a key priority of the Japanese government. Prime Minister Suga has made two points clear that his priority is to make Japan and also the world much more digitalized and also to make them greener in terms of carbon neutral. We very much hoping to strengthen the global rules and also promotion of digitalized economy. And I think the WTO e-commerce negotiations that just mentioned in response to your previous question is certainly high on our priority list. Japan has advocated the concept of the data-free flow with trust, what we call DFFT, at the Osaka G20 Summit in 2019. And this encompasses many aspects of where digitalized economy can benefit global economic growth, not only for the e-commerce, but also using big data for areas like a smart city for better use of energy and also to use such data for medical and other purposes. So this digital DFFT, or data-free flow with trust, concept one is to make sure that the data flows freely. There won't be any protectionism or self-centered ways of monopolizing data, but also to ensure that the flow of data would be done in the much more reliable way so that privacy would be protected and there won't be any use that would only benefit totalitarian regime and so forth. So in that sense, so much needs to be done and definitely the regional talks or the discussions among the countries with shared interests and goals will be something that Japan is very keen to advance. There's much under discussion internally and we are also finding ways to discuss this further with key partners. Let's see how fast and how much we can advance, especially in this time of global pandemic. Everyone knows, just like we are doing this through podcast and remote session, that enhanced connectivity and using information in digitalized format have become even more relevant.
0: Well, thank you so much, San. and a number of good points there. And I would agree with the data free flow with trust, I think is a really important initiative. And I think it gets the heart of what I was inquiring about with this looking beyond the horizon. It was a really nice initiative. And, and I mean, I'm hoping that we're able to push this forward a little bit more, because rather than necessarily focusing on the yesterday or even the today, I mean, this is a today discussion as well. I think the discussion internationally on trying to find rules and guidelines for data management, for e-commerce, for digital trade, is going to be crucial going forward. So I think this is a really important area to highlight and I'm happy to see Japan taking a leadership role in it. Finally, I absolutely agree with you that as much as we're appreciative of these digital ways to connect through podcasts and webinars, I think all of us can say we'll be looking forward to having the chance to do this in person and hope to see you in Tokyo or somewhere in person in the coming months. So thank you so much, Ishigaki-san, for joining us today. Thank you very much, Jonathan, for letting me take part in this very exciting program. Yes, definitely. Our
1: digitalized world has complemented our lives in many ways, but I certainly agree with you that the meeting in person to person cannot be replaced, and I very much look forward for our next conversation, hopefully in person.